นโมทัสสะกุวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะ
And the spirit behind this, as is pretty obvious to see, is not carrying over uh, the old. We all upset each other, no matter how hard we try. And Even if you're fully enlightened, you can still upset people. Just because you're free from greed, aversion and delusion doesn't mean to say that the outer expression of your being is going to be pleasing to everybody. So out of respect for harmony and concord and wanting to wish everybody uh, well, this this ritual uh, takes place. And a very, uh, I think a, a very skillful aspect of, of traditional Buddhist culture. And, and then the what it does is give access to this experience of beginning again, a new opportunity to just start again, just wipe the slate clean and let's begin again, let's refresh and and something that perhaps uh, in our culture we have become a little bit uh, uh, casual around the use of rituals and traditions uh, these days with our um, emphasis on secular education and lineological aspect of our brains, we, which we value so much and which have brought a tremendous benefit, but perhaps they've... Uh, the radiance of our rational mind has sometimes, I think, overshadowed uh, the the richness of our intuitive, sensitive uh, faculties, uh, that aspect of our being which appreciates myth, that appreciates ris- ritual, that, that senses the relevance of symbols. Uh, now, the, it's understandable if we have been subjected to misuse of rituals and traditions and, and symbols that we could well want to reject them. And I can see how and why that might happen. But uh, I think sometimes it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to dismiss all these things because uh, you know what it's like with Christmas and New Year. No matter how overly commercialized it's become and and irritating and disappointing and and unattractive in many aspects, still people want to market. And I would suggest it's partly because on some level we want this opportunity to wish each other well. It's an excuse. It's an, an opportunity to just remember to pass on kind gestures to each other. And on New Year's Eve, some of you probably have been here where we have the forgiveness and renewal ritual here at midnight. And, and every year the Dhamma Hall is, is, is really full with people who want to spend their New Year's Eve here engaged in this, this ritual. And so the opportunity to begin again and recognizing how perhaps we can make skillful use of these rituals and also <clears throat> recognizing how important it is in our inner life, this being able to begin again. Mm. Training in beginning again. If we don't know how to let go of the past, if we don't just pay attention to and learn the lessons from the past, which I'm sure we all recognize as skillful and conducing with understanding. And not just that, but we overly dwell on the past. We can't let go of the past and begin again. Then we are limited. But if there's a 
commitment or if there's some skill in the inner life. Uh, this is the place of, of meditation or one aspect of meditation. You don't have to do much mindfulness practice to recognize that the ability to observe your mind can give you the skill to let go of the past. Well, it can begin to give you the skill. It doesn't mean to say that suddenly our obsession with all that happened in the past is going to disappear, but it it introduces us to the possibility. We can trust in this. We see this is worth training in. Mm. Letting go of the past and the opportunity to begin again. Mm. Maybe you're familiar with that uh, that wonderful book by Shunri and Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I, uh, I was fortunate to come across in my first year as a monk in Thailand, 30-something, 30 37, 8 years ago. And uh, in my, that time I didn't have many books in English and for me it was, it was a kind of uh, Buddhist Bible for me that uh, the emphasis on valuing the beginner's mind to approach life fresh, to not be caught up in the momentum the accumulation of our habits. You know, this is um, so limiting. I mean, any of you that have been on retreats will know this, that the feeling of being unburdened. Uh, it may be the case that you know, some talking therapy is what you need to unburden yourself. But if we, can, if we can cultivate the inner skill to unburden ourselves simply by seeing that there's, there is this possibility of letting go, you know, we don't, you know, we don't have to cling to the sense of who we are. You know, the deluded personality finds its sense of security by dwelling on the past, by looking at old photographs, by retelling, retelling stories, even miserable stories, even awful stories, just telling ourselves over and over again, redefining ourselves, this is me, this is my field of experience, these are my problems, this is my personality these are my abilities and we use a huge amount of energy just telling ourselves these stories about who and what we are over and over again and it can build up a sense of fear that if we let go of this who am i it becomes frightening and unfortunately it's uh, people misunderstand this even in the in uh, sometimes religious teachings, I've been told, I think it was by my uh, very devout Christian sister, uh, that, uh, that when the mind is empty, that's when Satan comes in. And of course, that's, uh, that's very frightening. We don't want that to happen. And, but we're not talking about being totally empty-headed. What we're talking about is filling the mind, filling the heart with the radiance of awareness. It's not empty in the sense of there's no awareness no attention, no care. Yeah. It's empty of the clutter. Yeah. Again, probably all of us have had the experience of you know, maybe each year we do the spring cleaning thing or maybe if you're moving house and, and it's the time to dispose of the excess stuff that you know, even as monks it's very easy for us to accumulate uh, that um, without any effort at all our room or our cottage can become filled up with 
things that uh, actually are not very necessary. And so if we go through some discipline of relinquishing, getting rid of, cleaning, and it feels good. Feels good. Well, really, in the uh, inner discipline and the spiritual practice, we want to be able to do this every day. We want to be able to finish every day by just cleaning it all out. Anything excess. Yeah. And once again, this is not becoming empty-headed. Uh, this is not becoming an airhead. This is refreshing, renewing, so we have the potential for seeing things clearly. So we can let go of this unfortunate habit of defining ourselves in terms of our past experience. Having to always be somebody based on what's happened in the past. Even being a victim. Often, for people, that's, that's their identity, me, the victim. I recently looked up the words of John Lennon's song. Some of you will remember, a working class hero is something to be. Yeah, It was a real, the cry of a victim, a very sad uh, piece of music. Yeah, and maybe at the time we heard it a few years ago, we might have even liked it because sometimes to resonate with somebody else's sadness can give us a bit of security. But if you read the words, it's a tragic uh, cry of, uh, of sadness and despair coming from somebody who was identified with being a victim. Yeah. Even being a victim is better from the deluded personality's perspective than being nobody. And that's really sad. Really painful, painful condition to be. But the deluded personality, that personality which is not educated with Dhamma, not educated according to reality, doesn't have the calm, the discernment to be able to investigate all these stories that we tell ourselves until we reach the experience of them falling away. It's not Letting go is not a matter of getting rid of. It's letting go is what happens when you see through something. It's like when you wake up from a dream, whatever was going on in the dream, you say, well, that's over. You don't don't run off to see your best friend and say, oh, I'm being chased by a monster. Because you know, well, that was a dream. Hmm. So when there's uh, an adequate degree of of awareness, of understanding of our inner world, you start to see these stories, these false identities, for what they are, they fall away. Like when you wake up, the dream is gone. It's maybe a little reverberation of the energy of the dream there, but basically you're not convinced by it anymore. And similarly, the inner practice, the life of contemplation, the meditation that we train in, one of the aspects of it is to equip us with the skill to let go of these false identities, these energy-consuming delusions. And Now, the... Um, The identity of being a victim, even though it's painful and sad, can still be very energizing. And you can get enthusiasm from being a victim, get off on it. Or if you get a little perspective on it, maybe you grow up a bit and read some self-help books and arrive at the perception that you're not a victim, but then you flip to the other side, following the circle of samsaric existence and you're no longer a victim and then you flip to the other side and become a perpetrator and... There's plenty of evidence around it, and we've probably all heard of the, the, the tragedy of 
of the perpetrators of suffering and abuse in this world have often, earlier on in their life, been uh, the subject of abuse. And, and this is the uh, unfortunate consequence of a heart and a mind that's not truly educated, not educated according to reality, that falls for the misperception that these stories, these false identities that we've accumulated are really in who and what we are. This is our true identity. So whether we're a victim or whether we get off on being a perpetrator, they can be very energizing and give us a lot of enthusiasm. But it's not good energy. This is you know, not not wholesome, not sustaining. It's, it's, it's destroying us. So what did the Dhamma have to say to this? What did the Buddha have to say about this? What is our true identity? Who are we really? Where do we find our sense of security, a reliable sense of being? Now this momentum towards finding out who we are and becoming our true self, and expression in the new age world, we often hear these days, you know, becoming my true self. And this process of becoming is something the Buddha identified as something to be very careful about. It's like, it's like he called it, it's like an addiction. Again, the, the sense of always moving towards something. That in itself can become a false identity. Yeah. If we're not becoming something, we can feel like we're nobody. And then, as I said, if we're used to being some sort of a, uh, a story that we've told ourselves many times or somebody else has told us, hmm, then the thought of being nobody can be really disturbing. But the Buddha actually wants us to investigate all these assumptions. Investigate even the fear of being nobody. The desire to be somebody, which is very close to the momentum of becoming. This momentum of becoming is always, it's a momentum, it's a movement. It's never peaceful. And when we're caught up in it, we can never be peaceful. We can never be still. We're never still so long as we're caught up in the process of becoming. Becoming anything, even becoming good, becoming wise, becoming virtuous. Ajahn Chah would say, don't become anything. Don't become a Buddha. Don't become an Arahant. Don't become a Bodhisattva. You become anything, you're going to suffer. Mm. Now, from those who have only an initial level of understanding of Buddhism, you think, well, that's a bit weird. I thought we were supposed to be becoming wise and compassionate. Well, that's sort of true. But we need to go deeper and get to understand for ourselves the process of becoming what, what, what I said is referred to as an addiction. Yeah. It's like desire, as we've talked about many times before, in and of itself is not a problem. It's like fire or like electricity. Electricity is not a problem, is it? Unless you stick a screwdriver in the socket and then you've, <laughs> you've got a problem. But the problem is not with electricity. It's not, it's not electricity. It's not the cause of your suffering. It, it's ignorance. It's the sticking the screwdriver in the socket. That wasn't a wise thing to do. Or sticking your hand in the fire. Or, from a Dhamma perspective, practice perspective, 
identifying with the movement of consciousness we call desire. It's as stupid as sticking a screwdriver in a, in a wall socket. Really stupid. Yeah. But because it's more subtle and because we don't usually get a good enough education on this dimension, we do this all the time. We're all clinging to desire, desire to have, desire to become, desire to get rid of. And this keeps us unsettled. We don't know the stillness that the Buddha talked about, the stillness of the heart that is awakened, the stillness of the heart that understands. That stillness is an inherent stillness. It's not a stillness that's created or fabricated or made. It's the stillness of like the stillness of space. Space just is. The stuff, the things, come through space. Space is always there. It's there before, during, and after the things move through it. Similarly, with the awakened consciousness, stillness is always there. The stuff, the movement, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions move through, arise, and pass through the stillness. The stillness is not disturbed from the perspective of an awakened being. From our perspective, because we don't understand, we don't see, we become the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impression. We become the liking and disliking, and we don't see we're doing it. So the Buddha held this up and said, so long as you're identified with becoming, you're never going to be peaceful. Don't get lost in becoming. Even becoming good. This morning I was sitting in my kuti, looking out the window, and, and all these lovely people were coming today to the monastery to offer lovely food and generous offerings and but um, I was watching what happens when people go through that gate at the entrance to the garden there they come to the gate and they're in such a hurry to go and make merit that they just unlatch the gate and barge through and then slam let the gate shut and don't bother to put the latch back on again and I'm thinking what a, why would they do that well, obviously they don't know I'm watching them and <laughs> getting unhappy about it. You know, that gate took a lot of work to make, a lot of skill, a lot of attention, kindness into constructing that gate. And and I'd really like it to last a long time, but when people barge through it and then just let it slam shut. And in fact, the other gate, the other side of the garden, got broken today. And not sure how that happened, but maybe it was the same thing. But anyway, when I got to think about it, why would people do that? They're good people, you know, trying to do good stuff. But even though it's good stuff they're trying to do, they're lost in it. They're lost in the becoming good, lost in becoming generous. And and so the Buddha very strongly encourages to slow down. You know, like I was saying to the people at the meeting this morning, you know, I hope your visit to the monastery helps you slow down. Listen, feel, feel the consequences of the way you conduct your life. And then just in feeling, all right, yeah, that actually doesn't make me peaceful. Just like a little child, you know, you can't wait till the child's rational faculties are sophisticated enough to be able to explain the conductivity of heat and and why they shouldn't touch the stove. You Basically, you've got to take the little being's hand and put it near the stove and they've got to feel, oh, right, that's dangerous. That Once we feel, this is what meditation's about, this is what mindfulness is about, 
This is what inner work is about, is feeling the reality of our lives, feeling the consequences of the way we meet experience so we can meet it wisely, sensitively. So it takes time. It's not, um, it doesn't happen just because we want it to happen. But if we do exercise the discipline of attention, if we're really sincerely interested in coming to really take responsibility for the way we meet experience, meet our life, use our energy, all this wild, passionate energy that we have that can be so wonderfully, skillfully, generously used to generate benefit for ourselves and others, or irresponsibly dissipated and waste the opportunity and cause harm for ourselves or others. If we want to make the choice to be truly responsible, then, yeah, being interested in the inner work is an intelligent choice, a sensible, a wise choice. But even then, as I said, it takes time to get to recognise our ability, to get in touch with our ability, to, to really feel in our guts that we are able to take responsibility for our lives, that we are able to restrain our wild nature. We are able to choose to not invest ill will in our painful memories. We are able to choose to forgive. may not want to, may be difficult, but we have this ability as human beings, unless we are seriously disabled. For the majority of us, we have this ability as a potential. And the inner work, our contemplation, our investigation, our meditation is to come directly in touch with that ability until we feel it and we feel good about it. We might also feel scared about it because it means we're responsible for so much more of our life than we thought we were. But to get in touch with that ability takes time, but once we start to feel it, well then we also see the potential of it. If we're able to restrain ourselves, not through repression, not through denial, not through avoidance, but just through skillful, wise reflection and this exercise of attention, if we start to truly feel this, then we see the potential for not blaming anymore. Not blaming what blaming is, is where we either don't know or lose touch with our ability to live responsibly. Yeah. I don't just mean apportioning responsibility sort of blame. I mean where we project out our passion, our hurt, and say, you hurt me. Actually, nobody can really make us suffer. Suffering, as we've said many times before, is a choice. Pain is not a choice, but suffering is what we add extra through our resistance. And so when we start to get in touch with our sense of ability that's potentially there within us, then we can see the possibility of ending all blaming. Hmm. We don't have to blame our parents, blame our astrological configuration, blame our genetic makeup. Blame the government. And also, that's on the negative side, on the positive side, once we get in touch with our sense of ability, 
we also recognize the potential for, as we're saying, start off by saying, we can be forgiving. We can be forgiving. We can be loving. A lot of us spend our life wanting to be forgiven, praying to imagined external beings or other people, wanting to be forgiven, feeling we need to be forgiven. It's a relative and valid experience to feel the need to be forgiven. But another way of addressing that might be to recognize the power that we have to forgive, the ability we have to forgive. And instead of always spending our life wanting to be loved, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, we can engage the ability to be loving. So not fabricating, not inventing, not imagining, not believing in this ability, but doing our inner work in a way with patience, with commitment, until we start to feel for ourselves this ability. Now, the perception of ability is not necessarily totally rewarding and uh, uplifting. It can also be quite threatening, or as I said a minute ago, it can it can feel quite frightening. Because you know, once you start to recognize your ability... You also start to see that you're responsible for all your suffering. Yes, as I was saying, you know, pain is part of the package. You get born with these sensitive organisms, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, cognizing. We can feel pain. But if there's no resistance, yeah. there's no suffering. So we are responsible for the suffering, and that's frightening. That's frightening when you stop to think of it. Hmm. But it's also inspiring, it's energizing, and at the same time, it takes a certain kind of strength. But the strength or the energy that it takes to exercise this power, the power to bring about change, the power that takes us in the direction of Freedom from suffering. If we we at least intuit the possibility of responsibility for our suffering and with that the recognition, the potential for being free from suffering, even if we begin to just intuit that, then we're inspired and encouraged to cultivate the strength to go in that direction. Not to ask other people to take responsibility for us. It's very adolescent to always be expecting mum and dad to take responsibility for us or the the welfare state to take responsibility for us. Not feeling that we have this ability, that we have this power, is a form of disability. But if we engage the inner work skillfully, in an appropriate way, with commitment, with understanding, then maybe we start to recognise it's not an obligation. And as I was saying, we get inspired to cultivate these, well, I call them the soft powers. What the world admires and praises and makes movies about and writes novels about is the hard powers of of assertiveness, of goal achieving, of energy and of attainment and and conquering and, and determination. Which, of course, as we know, 
all have their place. But the refinement of consciousness that comes with commitment, and if you've had the good fortune to meet or hear teachings from beings who are truly refined and realized in their commitment to practice, then you'll witness experience sense also in their company the profundity of these soft powers of gentleness, of kindness, of humility, of integrity. Without integrity, then I would suggest there's no way we can truly steward the power that we're talking about here. There needs to be a recognition of the power of integrity. When I was... When I think about the teachers that I had the good fortune to live with in my years in Thailand, the Ajahn Tate and Ajahn Chah, and think of Ajahn Tate, and he was, he was tough. I mean, every night we would go down there and be six or eight of us on him doing Thai-style massages, kind of means like the elbow, and like really leaning into him. And he was went to his, his 70s, and he had already been diagnosed with leukemia, but he was tough, but he was so gentle. He was so, so gentle. You look at him and listen to him and there's this extraordinary subtlety of being. Rajan Chah, I mean, formidable force. You wouldn't mess with Rajan Chah. Nobody would mess with him. Very strong, very powerful, able, competent human being, but also so stunningly kind. So not to misperceive what we might read in the scriptures or what we might hear from others, but to listen to our own hearts and as we progress along this path towards freedom from suffering, to be gentle, to be kind, to be patient, and not to make the mistake of turning the spiritual path, the path of awakening, into just another becoming. Remember what the Buddha was saying, that any becoming is going to be suffering. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.